Hey everybody, welcome to the e-commerce edge podcast by MGR agency. I hope everybody is having a fantastic week. I am as always and uh, we're going to talk about three major topics this week. Number one, surprise, profits matter. I'm going to talk about that in a second. It's going to kind of stem from last week's episode, which uh, a lot of you liked and I got some good feedback on. And then we're going to talk about some Amazon um, price gouging on the seller end. And then I've got to talk about the giant Chinese elephant in the room this week with all of the controversies that happen with the NBA, um, with obviously the over the, the the looming trade controversies and disagreements between the US and China. I want to talk about it and how it's going to affect e-commerce companies specifically. So anyways, let's start with profits. So the reason why I say surprise profits matter is obviously uh, we've been in a very plush decade of financing, especially in the private sector. I mean, the public sector too. Listen, you've got some pretty insane valuations in the public sector too. Um, but overall, money has been pretty free-flowing. There's lots of arguments as to why. We're not going to get into that. Uh, but the point is that there has been free-flowing money and that a lot of companies have been pushing off profitability for growth. And that's a standard tactic. That's not anything new, but I don't think that it's ever really been done to the levels that we've seen in the past decade where a company like Uber, for example, loses a billion dollars a quarter. And yes, it's for growth, but when all of a sudden that growth stalls and they're not able to win in markets like India, which is major losses for them, then all of a sudden their valuation goes from, if you remember, they were hoping to IPO at $120 billion valuation and they ended up, uh, what, around 40, 50, 60 in that range. Uh, I'm not sure what they are right now. I think they're at about 50, 60 in that range. But anyways, point is they're at about half of what they wanted to be and what the private market investors were hoping they would be once they reached the public market. Um, and I'm going to talk about real quick an acquisition that happened this week which was a company by the name of Drunk Elephant. They're a millennial skincare brand. Um, they got lo- acquired by a large Japanese uh, CPG company. Uh, but they got acquired for $845 million. The company this year, 2019, is on track to do about $100 million in revenue. So in revenue, $100 million, and they're selling for $845 million. Why, you ask? You say that's a high multiple, eight and a half times revenue, not profits, revenue. I mean, their profit multiple, I, their profits are not public. Um, but why did they get such a high revenue? Or, I'm sorry, such a high multiple? It's because they are profitable and growing. Not growing and not profitable, okay? Because a lot of companies have been focusing just on growth. And growth is great. It's a it's a fine strategy. It's really the the venture capital thesis. Lose money up front, make major investment, capture massive market share, and then profit on the back end. But what happens when that profit on the back end never shows up? Well, that's what when what happens is we see, you know, week work over these past few weeks go from 40 plus billion, 47 billion valuation down to 10 or 12. You know, 75% of the value wiped away in a month. 
and now they're laying off 500 people that just came out yesterday, I believe. Bonobos is another example. They're one of the OG uh, D2C companies that got acquired for $300 million by Walmart years ago, and now they are laying off employees because they're still not profitable. So in a world where finding profitable companies is actually very hard. There's tons of fast growing companies, but there are very few companies that are able to grow sustainably and grow profitably. And because there's so few of them these days, a company like Drunk Elephant, who is growing profitably, is able to fetch an eight and a half times revenue multiple. And that's something to keep in mind. You know, a lot of you guys are trying to build the next great uh, D2C brand. But the truth is, just trying to raise a bunch of money and then spend it all on marketing and growing that way is not necessarily the best strategy. It can work, but when you're competing so much with every company that's doing so, it's it's better to find differentiated growth tactics. And if you want to listen to my episode last week where I talked about the Food52 acquisition and how they did just that, uh, they they were able to grow without much paid marketing, uh, go listen to that. But I just think that differentiated growth tactics and companies that are able to find ways to grow profitably without just pouring in tons and tons of money on you know Facebook ads are going to be the ones that get those higher multiple exits and I think I mean the truth is a lot of people can say that they have their uh, mission statements and all these beautiful terminology around their companies most people are in this business to create something and within five to ten years make an exit whether it's going public which I think is much more rare case or getting acquired by a larger CPG company um, and getting acquired for a high multiple and if you want a high multiple it actually looks like being profitable matters surprise but anyways listen to last week's episode if you want more on that This week, um, in our Amazon Weekly newsletter, which if you're not subscribed to, by the way, just go to mgredge.com slash AMZ, and you can subscribe right there. It's a weekly newsletter, so if you're an Amazon seller, I'd strongly recommend you subscribe because we uh, give you recaps on everything Amazon each week and give you different strategies. But anyways... um, One of the things we talked about, and this has been around for a bit, but now Amazon is promoting it more than they have in the past, and they're pushing it more, is that they now have a special seller support program, except it's not free. It costs $5,000 a month to get a dedicated representative from Amazon. That's $60,000 a year. They're basically asking you to pay the salary of someone so that they can be a dedicated support rep, except they're not gonna be dedicated as in they only work with you. They're gonna be working with probably 10 to 20 different uh, companies. And those 10 to 20 companies, if if they're basically paying in, that would be 600 to 600,000 to 1.2 million a year to pay one person. Let's be very generous and say they're making 100,000, which they're definitely not as just a support rep, but let's be super, super, super generous. Uh, Amazon's making a ton of money on this. And the reason why I'm a little upset by this is because I think Amazon is price gouging uh, their, their sellers. They're gouging them because they know that their support system for sellers is very lackluster. And now they're saying, oh, you want good support? Well, we can give you a dedicated rep. You just have to pay us an additional $60,000 a year on top of the, all the fees you already pay. 
And the problem is that the, it just it's very out of reach for any company that's not doing because even if you're doing say a or fifty grand a month on Amazon, if you're gonna pay five grand a month to a rep, that's already ten percent of your revenue going to pay for a rep. That's, I mean, with the Amazon, most businesses, they don't have the margin to give 10%. Let's say you're making 100 grand a month. You're doing 1.2 million a year on Amazon. You're going to still pay 5%. That's still a lot. It's less so, but that's where it becomes affordable. But the crazy thing to me is the fact that they're making someone who's already doing 1.2 million a year on Amazon, okay? If you look at the fees they pay, on average, people pay about 15%. That's the most common uh, affiliate fee, referral fee. I'm sorry, uh, that Amazon charters 15%. Some are lower, some are higher, but in most cases, it's about 15%. Okay, so if you're paying 15% on 1.2 million, you're already paying them $180,000 a year. You'd think for $180,000 a year, Amazon would be able to provide support without saying, oh, we want another 60. And not to mention that these companies most of the time don't just make 1.2 million a year without advertising. Let's say they spend 10% of that 1.2 million, so 120 grand, plus the 180 they they pay for uh, in in referral fees just to be on the platform. They're paying Amazon $300,000 a year, and they still don't have a dedicated support rep. They still Amazon wants them to pay an extra 60 grand. That's just gouging. Are you kidding me? I mean, Amazon can definitely afford to pay uh, to have reps for the higher level uh, uh, accounts on their platform. Facebook does the same thing. Facebook doesn't charge you for uh, extra money for a rep. You just have to meet certain uh, ad spend criteria, and then you get a rep. I understand it. Amazon says, listen, if you're only doing let's say 20 grand a month, it's just not worth it to us to give you a dedicated rep. Okay, fine. But if you're doing tens and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands a month, even more, you are making plenty on the fees you already charge to afford a support rep that, by the way, is going to have 20 different accounts because it's not like you're going to have problems every single day. Maybe you only talk to that support rep once a month. You're basically paying them. Let's say you talk to them all of on average, five to 10 hours a month, you're paying 500 to $1,000 an hour for support. I mean, that's just absolutely crazy. I think that I just think that and listen, Amazon's under a lot of uh, regulatory scrutiny, antitrust scrutiny. And I don't know if the antitrust legislators know about this program, but I'm sure if they heard about it, it wouldn't help Amazon's case at all in the fact that the biggest antitrust case against them is not on the consumer side, but on the fact that they're taking advantage of sellers. And this is just another example of that. And I just think that it's disappointing from Amazon. If you're going to have dedicated support reps, I totally understand that you say, listen, you have to meet certain revenue criteria to do so. But if someone's already doing 50 grand a month on Amazon, okay, that's 600 grand a year, and they're paying you 15% of that, so that's $90,000 a year, that should be enough for you to provide uh, better support than what's available through just the regular uh, case log that takes forever. And it's many times you get people who just the Amazon representatives, because I mean, listen, in our experience, it's a revolving door. And there's just a lot of people who really I have to tell them about certain policies their own company has because they don't even know. And I'll have to point to them. Hey, look at this page right here on Amazon's website. It says X, Y, and Z. And this is what I'm saying. They say, oh, you're right. Yeah, let me look into that. It's like, anyways. 
they need to provide better support. And the answer is not to just charge a ridiculous amount for it. Okay, let's talk China. Um, I wanted to kind of tie this into Amazon a little bit because there was a report that came out earlier this week that said that at now from in 2016, 26% of the top US sellers on Amazon were Chinese. And now this year, it's up to 36%. So over a third. What do I mean by top sellers? Uh, it was sellers doing over 1 million a year in revenue. So of all the sellers on Amazon doing over 1 million a year in revenue, 38%, more than a third are Chinese sellers. And in Europe, it's even higher. It's in the 40% range, uh, depending on the country. And listen, that isn't necessarily bad. There's plenty of Chinese sellers who um, are good good sellers. They're no different than, than anybody else in the world. And they're just trying to create a legitimate business. And they know that the U.S. is a big market. So they want to sell to U.S. customers. That's all. And that's great. There's no problem with that. The problem is that there's also a lot of bad apples. And when you look at all the majority, I shouldn't say all, the majority of counterfeit products on Amazon, the majority of companies that come and massively undercut the competition because they have pricing advantages, or I should say cost of goods advantages over US sellers, it's almost always Chinese. There's almost all the counterfeits come from China and they're on Amazon. It's a major, major issue for Amazon and they're trying to crack down, but it's very, very difficult. And then also the Chinese have lots of advantages when it comes to getting low prices on cost of goods and low prices of shipping goods to the US. Uh, there's the something called the e-packet, which is the US Postal Services. It's over 100 years old. It's this uh, program that basically let underdeveloped countries ship things to the US. I believe it's up to four pounds, which encompasses obviously a ton of different products. So as long as your shipment as long as your per item is four pounds or less, you're going to get big discounts on your shipping from China to the US. And it applies to lots of underdeveloped countries. But China is no longer an underdeveloped country, but these Chinese sellers are still able to take advantage of it. And there were rumors a few weeks ago, again, I talked about this in uh, our weekly newsletter, but to reiterate that Trump in the trade war uh, negotiations with China was threatening to pull that to basically remove China from that list saying, and probably rightly so, I mean, China is not an underdeveloped country anymore. And the US Postal Service is obviously paid for by the US taxpayer. And the U.S. Postal Service was losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year to China on this deal uh, because they were getting cheap shipping. And it's like, why are U.S. taxpayers uh, subsidizing Chinese sellers who are then going onto U.S. Amazon markets, undercutting uh, U.S. sellers because they have these price advantages and hurting U.S. businesses and then taking that money and bringing it back to China. That doesn't make sense. It's basically all be f all, all these advantages that the Chinese have on shipping are being funded by the U.S. taxpayer. So that makes sense. And as an American, I'm for not subsidizing Chinese sellers. Um, but I wanted to talk about Chinese controversy because if we take a step back, what happened this week as well, if you haven't heard, I'm sure many of you have, is the NBA China controversy. Um, so those of you who don't know what happened, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, uh, Daryl Morey, 
made a tweet in solidarity of Hong Kong, basically saying, uh, I forget exactly, it said support democracy, support Hong Kong, something like that. Um, and it, it, not to mention that, it, especially that he's the GM of the Rockets, I wonder if it was a different team, if it would be less of a big deal. But Daryl Morey is a outspoken owner, or I'm sorry, outspoken general manager in the NBA. And he happens to be the general manager of the Houston Rockets, who are a big-time team in China. Yao Ming, who's the most famous player or former player uh, from China, played in Houston. So it's a big deal uh, that he said it, especially coming from the Rockets. And basically, this whole one tweet caused a massive cascade. And there's been a ton written about this. Um, and I'm sure many of you have heard of heard of what's happened already. But to give a quick 10-second uh, recap basically the chinese were very upset and they have right now the nba preseason just started and they have major tv deals they're playing games in shanghai i believe the los angeles lakers and the brooklyn nets have a game this week sometime i forget exactly what day it is and they were they canceled the tv broadcast china canceled the tv broadcast of that game in china and there were rumors that they might even cancel the game altogether. The Lakers canceled um, a signing uh, photo op that they had with Chinese people where they speaking, Chinese people could come and get signatures from players like LeBron, etc. Um, and so all this kind of cascade happened. The Chinese said that they were very disappointed and they made a statement that was very crude, which was something along the lines of, I mean, it almost was literally this. We support the NBA's stance on freedom of expression, but we don't support it if it is anti-China. It was almost word. It was almost exactly that. It was worded a little better, but they basically said we we support NBA and America's free speech, except when it's anti-China speech. Which obviously that's not how free speech works. And China is a major major censorship country. Uh, there is no such thing as free speech in China. And now they're trying to censor any businesses that do uh, that work with China, and at a higher level, this is one example, and it's more publicized because obviously the NBA has a lot of fans, and they're a more public company than, say, you know, some random corporation. Then maybe there's a quick headline, but most people don't pay much attention to. Uh, but a lot of companies find themselves in this situation where they find themselves choosing between morals and money do they abide by chinese censorship do they look the other way when it comes to chinese humanitarian rights violations in exchange for money i mean that's that's really the truth in in the nba is the biggest western sport in china it's bigger than uh american football it's bigger than actual european football soccer whatever you want to call it um it's bigger than baseball basketball is really the biggest western sport in china um, and they have a lot of money on the line there. They have, I think, a $500 million TV contract. They're the, uh, on Weibo, the, the page for the NBA has like 50 million followers in China. So there's a lot of Chinese fans of basketball. And losing that partnership could be a big, big deal. And it trickles down too because obviously, you know, NBA partners like Nike and Adidas and all these companies have relationships with China too. They're trying to expand there. So there's lots of levels to this. But at the end of the day, what it really is, is that uh, companies are finding themselves in this sticky situation where they want to access the Chinese market and the Chinese consumer, but they don't necessarily want to abide by the Chinese governments, the, the totalitarian governments, strict 
censorship rules and doesn't want to they don't want to show themselves as approving their humanitarian violations but at the same time there's so much money on the line that they're willing to look past it and kind of turn a blind eye and you know i think this tweet by daryl morey caused a lot of uh, it, it brought a lot of attention to the issue. And I think a lot of people who maybe knew about something happening in Hong Kong but didn't really pay attention to it because it was happening on the other side of the world now are very aware of what's going on in Hong Kong. If you don't know, basically China is trying to pass an extradition law in Hong Kong, meaning that Chinese police can go into Hong Kong and arrest Chinese or arrest Hong Kong citizens and bring them back to China. And Hong Kong citizens obviously said, absolutely not. We are not going to let that happen. And that's why all these protests are happening. But my question is, does this tweet, this one tweet, act as a catalyst? Is it is it the domino that started the chain reaction uh, between a major rift between the U.S. and Chinese uh, consumer markets? There's obviously, I mean, the Chinese uh, trade war has been going on for, what, a couple of years now between the U.S. and China, basically since Trump came in office. Um, but this is the first time that I've seen lots and lots of people, but the the key thing here is it really seems to be a both sides of the aisle issue in the US where both the left and a, and the right seem to be agreeing that yes we should uh not be easy on China and we should not uh be easy on companies that turn the, a blind eye on China's humanitarian violations uh, just because of potential profits and I don't know. I, I think something like this definitely could be a domino. But wh- where does this lead? And what what should a company's stance be? Because there's the other theory that says that trade actually brings peace, that free trade between countries brings peace. And I believe that to a certain extent. It does bring peace. But I don't know if it brings... Uh, it does. I don't know that it would lift China into a democracy. And clearly it hasn't. And that was kind of the idea. Uh, Ben Thompson of Stratechery, I'll leave a link in the uh, podcast show notes. Uh, He is a great blogger. He's a great blogger. And he has a great way of crystallizing a lot of the thoughts that I think a lot of people like myself have and writing them down in very concise, clear ways. Uh, He's a great writer. Definitely check it out. I'll leave a link below. Uh, But anyways, he wrote that basically the idea was way back all the way to Bill Clinton when he was in office over 20 years ago that that the U.S. and China being uh, trade partners would eventually lead to China being much better in their humanitarian efforts and maybe eventually being an actual democracy. And that clearly hasn't happened. In fact, I don't want to say it's gotten worse. It's never been good. But the surveillance state has never been much more than it is now just because the government has more technology to to surveil their own people. Um, But my question is, is there going to be a demand? Because really, all all these companies care about is their profits. And as big of a profit center as China might potentially be, the U.S. is obviously the biggest profit center of all. So the NBA isn't going to risk their American profit center, and neither is any other American company, versus potential profits in China. And the question is, is the American consumer going to now start saying, listen, I really don't want to give my money to companies that are doing business in China. And I could actually see that happening. I don't know that if it would happen 
quickly or on a uh, uh, national scale let every single person does this but i could see it slowly happening more and more and more and having consumers basically say listen i don't want to do business i don't want to give my business to companies that are essentially profiting from an authoritarian regime that's that's the question but and another one is where do you draw the line so i asked myself this right in our company we don't have any direct ties to china we don't work with any chinese companies as far as having them as a client uh we don't take money from china we don't have chinese investors anything like that um but we do have indirect ties because obviously we work with a lot of companies uh, in the e-commerce space. And, you know, a lot of them, obviously, like I'm sure if you're listening now, have manufacturing in China or at least parts of their supply chain run through China. So we have indirect business. So where do you draw the line if you're a company who says, OK, we don't really want to be in business with China, but China is such a major power, especially on the manufacturing front, that it's almost impossible not to do business in some way or another with China uh, right now. And and my question is, over the next, say, decade, could there be a major split, a major rift between the U.S. and China where almost all business ties get cut off? And and that's a bigger question. And that's I, I don't like to be political on this show. This is an e-commerce tactics show it's to help you with strategy but you know when you're running a business you have to think about what are your risks what are especially the existential risk and an existential risk of a lot of companies is what if uh something major happens in the u.s china trade war and all of a sudden the u.s and china completely split ties and then you have the whole world basically having to choose sides. Could that be a a Cold War 2.0 where everyone's choosing sides between the U.S. and China, just like you had everyone choosing sides between the U.S. and the Soviet Union back in the days? I don't know. But it also is an existential risk to businesses who have their supply chain in China. And what if all of a sudden that gets cut off overnight and you're supply chain is completely disrupted and you need to find new manufacturers very quickly and the odds of you finding new manufacturers who could make your products the same way for the same prices and somewhere else is very low and you know i think if you're a small business you say well china wouldn't do that because that hurts them too but that's not really your concern right because geopolitical your concern is not uh china's long-term geopolitical stability your concern is whether you stay in business or not and whether China kind of shoots themselves in the foot a little bit and and uh, takes a stand that hurts themselves or the U.S. takes a stand and hurts ourselves. All that matters to you is that you stay in business. And this is a real threat. And it's just something to think about. And I don't know, I'm not saying that there's a right or wrong answer here that you should just move all of your business out of China and try to stay away from China. Um, but it's something to certainly think about. And it's something to certainly at least have in the back of your mind a plan B and plan C and plan D all the way to say, okay, if there's a worst case scenario where just the U.S. and China completely split, there's no trade deal, nothing. It's just a hard, like an iron curtain back in the day between the USSR and the rest of the world. It's a, you know, an iron curtain across the Pacific where we don't do anything with China anymore. It's something to think about. I don't hope that's the outcome i hope that there's a deal and that because the thing is i've worked with a lot of chinese people too in the past and the chinese people are very 
good people. There's nothing, I mean, they're just regular people. Most of them just want to provide for their families. They are very ambitious, no different than any person anywhere else. Um, but they live in an authoritarian regime who is power hungry and is willing to put power and money over humanitarian rights, which is something that in the Western world we are not willing to do. And that's the major rift. And the question is, who's going to concede? Is the West going to concede to get the profits? Or is China going to have to concede and uh, become more humanitarian? That's the question. So far, China has not become more humanitarian. And they've only become more powerful. So maybe it, and I think that, you know, uh, again, not trying to be political, but I think this is what, Trump is trying to do and saying that he is trying to be harder on China. Um, and I think a lot of people in the West agree with that. Like I said, at least as far as the reaction to the NBA uh, tweeting and kind of disavowing Mori instead of disavowing China, a lot of people, both sides were very upset with the NBA. And we'll have to see where this goes. But as far as for your business, it's something to seriously think about. There is no right answer. We can't predict the future, especially political outcomes. Who knows? That's really up to the decisions of very few at very high levels. And I don't know what's going on behind closed doors in the White House or in China. Uh, but it's something to think about and it's something to certainly have backup plans for. Anyways, that was a bit of a ramble. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. If you did, please, please share this episode with someone who you think would also enjoy it. And don't forget, subscribe to our weekly newsletter. It's free. There's no advertising, no nothing. Uh, it's just a newsletter that gives you every Monday info on Amazon if you're an Amazon seller. Anyways, guys, thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you next week.